Please join me in prayer. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. One of the things about following the lectionary is that the texts choose us, and we're forced to grapple with passages that might actually surprise us. Uh, we don't just read the Bible. The Bible reads us. And sometimes the process of reading brings us into challenging places. One person reflecting on the gospel reading today summed up what many might feel. This is not the kind of passage that you would want an atheist or somebody antagonistic to Christianity to read. Imagine trying to encourage someone to consider Christianity when they meet what seems to be a callously silent Jesus, an ethnocentric racist Jesus, a misogynist Jesus, who after a lot of haranguing, finally gives in to a needy woman's persistence. The passage presents us with a Jesus we haven't seen before, and one that we might not even like. And commentators, are, are, they, they work hard to try to explain away the problem. In fact, one commentator goes so far as to suggest that this passage shows that Jesus is fully human. He's just like us. Jesus has misunderstandings. He has mis mistaken attitudes and sinful racial tendencies, just like anyone else shaped by his own culture. He needs to be woke. And so the good news in the story in that case is that, that if even Jesus needs to change his perspective, uh, so do and, and can we. And so uh, according to this view, the bottom line would be that Jesus isn't really sinless. Now how to reconcile that idea with the biblical teaching that Jesus is God incarnate is beyond me. A less than perfect God incarnate could never be the savior of the world. And so this so-called good news would be horribly distorted and painfully inadequate. This option needs to be firmly rejected. Older attempts to explain the passage tend to suggest that Jesus is simply testing the woman's faith and he's bringing her to a place where her faith is exemplary. And while that might be a, a secondary theme or a byproduct of what Jesus is doing, I suggest that it short circuits the force of the passage and the challenge of the text. We just can't ignore the uncomfortable parts of the story. A sincere woman, a foreign woman, goes to Jesus for help. Yes, he finally heals her daughter, but only after the woman shows a willingness to be publicly humiliated. And we are forced to ask, why is this woman put through a ringer before Jesus agrees to cast the demon out of her daughter? Well, there are two key considerations I believe we must take into account to understand this passage. First of all, as Ken Bailey points out in his book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, Western readers like us tend to read the passage from a personal, individualistic perspective. And in doing so, we forget that most societies in the majority world still function as tightly knit communities. And as such, Bailey observes that a critical component, both in the parables of Jesus and their dramatic stories about him, is the ever-present community. 
And it's community that gives identity and profoundly influences our attitudes and our lifestyles. In the passage, this ever-present community is made up of the disciples primarily. In fact, it is the dialogue with them which is critical to us for understanding what is going on in this passage. Jesus is not just dealing with this woman. He's also interacting with disciples on a very fundamental level. And that brings me to the second key consideration. New Testament documents are missional documents. That is to say, the recipients of the New Testament documents, whether they're the letters or the gospel themselves, were directed to congregations that were being formed in the context of mission. And as such, they were asking key questions. Questions like, who is Jesus? What is the good news? What does it mean to live and to be the people of God? Uh, who, who's allowed to join us? What, what are the entrance requirements to this group of people? As we shall see, um, this, this will be critical to understanding our passage today. So as we bring these two ideas together, the disciples as the ever-present community and the recipients of this New Testament document as missional churches, we will see that the disciples' role in forming missional churches uh, meant that the foundation of the di disciples, the apostles' testimony, needs to be sound if the churches were going to be healthy. And so our theme for this sermon is making sense of Jesus when he seems to act out of character. And we'll see three things, the shock, the lesson, and the blessing. Now, after another confrontation with the Jewish leaders, Jesus withdraws to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And while he's there, a woman from the area comes to him with an urgent request. In fact, she, she cries out. And the same verb is used to describe how the disciples tried to wake Jesus during the storm on the lake. And so she is desperate. And this is what she says, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffers terribly. To get Jesus' attention, she has to cross three initial barriers, race, gender, and the religious barrier. She's, she's a member of the pagan nation, and from earliest times, Canaanites were considered to be enemies of Israel. Queen Je Je Jezebel, King Ahab's infamous wife, who had brought so much pain, suffering, and, and religious apostasy to Israel, was from this area. But there were also certain religious norms, even for Jews. Uh, rabbis were not expected to talk to females in public, not even the members of their own family. And so this woman is clearly restricted on multiple levels. Yet listen to what she says. Lord, son of David. Now while Lord can mean simply sir, uh, in Greek, when, when she adds son of David, it means much more than that in this context. Clearly, she had already heard about Jesus. In fact, in chapter 3 of his gospel, uh, Mark records that early in his ministry, Jesus became known in the region of Tyre and Sidon. 
Evidently, this woman was convinced of Jesus' power and his compassion. And for her to come with a messianic title at this point in the story is unexpected. It's surprising. So imagine, what does Jesus say to this woman's urgent request? Jesus doesn't say anything. Jesus responds to this woman with with silence. Imagine, try to put yourself in this woman's sandals. She's heard that Jesus was in her area, and she thought that this was her moment of opportunity. She had, so to speak, won the lottery. I mean, in a time of clear demarcation between Jews and Gentiles and borders and and the impossible challenge of traveling to Israel as a Canaanite woman to talk to Jesus, the, the rabbi, this was an opportunity not to be missed. Jesus was in her backyard. So she pulls out all the stops and she cries to him, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. But instead of the kind of response she had heard that he had given so freely to others, Jesus ignores her. He's silent. He doesn't say a single word. And while Jesus' reaction might be hard for us to understand, it is entirely consistent with the disciples' attitudes and social expectation. His, his silence is completely appropriate. After all, she's a woman and she's pagan. Jesus shouldn't be talking to her. And so the disciples are totally comfortable with Jesus' silence. It's pretty clear, though, that the woman is not going to be put off. In fact, she keeps calling. And, and that fact does not seem to make the least impression on the, on the disciples. We, we, we don't read of one going over to her to speak an encouraging word. Uh, no one thinks about her pain or suffering. No one talks to her at all. No, she, she's actually a bother. She's a nuisance. So after a while, the disciples come to Jesus. Listen to what they say. Send her away she's crying after us. Now, note, however, their attitude. They come and begging him. And the, so the verbs, again, in, in, indicate that this was an ongoing action. It's not just a one-term request. It's not a suggestion, but a desperate begging. And you have to wonder what was going on. Lord, tell her to go away. They, they don't even bother telling the woman themselves. It's beneath them to talk to her. Lord, please, you tell her because she's not getting the message of, of your silence. Tell her to get lost. She's disruptive. She's making a scene. Well, their demand gives Jesus an opportunity that he needs as a teacher to provide some critical education. Jesus doesn't lecture his disciples about their attitude or lack of compassion or their ethnocentric sin. He takes a different approach. On the surface, he seems to be agreeing with them. I mean, it would have been easy to think about Jesus as being the exclusive property of Galilee or the house of Israel. Um, He's on the Jewish side. He's part of the Jewish team. And when the world is divided up between us and them, he's clearly one of us. And so when Jesus finally speaks, the first thing he says is, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so again, it seems on the surface that that Jesus is agreeing with the disciples. He's endorsing their perspective, and he's implicitly saying to the woman, leave me alone. However, it's here that Jesus acts entirely out of character. And I have 
10 uh, reasons to show why Jesus is acting out of character here. I mean, even before Jesus was born, the messianic expectation was directed to all nations. As the Jews would have chanted Psalm 67, as we heard read in the, in the temple, they would have heard that this was something for all nations. And the prophet that we also read makes it clear that, that this was to be a house of prayer, that God was moving forward so that his house would be a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus' birth was clearly for the entire world. And so the words of Simeon, he says, My eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the, in, in, uh, in the presence of all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And when, when Jesus begins his public ministry in Nazareth, as we know in chapter 4 of Luke, uh, he uses two examples to show what's going on, and they're both from neighboring countries, Naaman and the widow of Zarephath. And we remember the reaction of the town. They wanted to kill him. And then you can think, for example, of Jesus and the Samaritan woman, and then how her entire village comes to confess that Jesus is the Messiah of the world. Or think of the centurion's son, and, sing, and you can also see how, how Jesus consistently extends grace to women, even those considered sinners, the woman who was bleeding, the woman who washed his feet with her tears. And then we have to ask, too, if, if Jesus is only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, then what in the world is he doing in Tyre and Sidon right now? And finally, when you compare Matthew's account with, Luke's, uh, with uh, Mark's version, it's interesting that Mark makes no mention of Jesus' exclusive ministry to the house of Israel. And we know that Matthew was written for the Jews and Mark was written to the Gentiles. And so clearly, something else is going on here. Well, Jesus is the world's best teacher and his pedagogy is fascinating. Jesus dares to express verbally what the disciples were actually thinking. In saying what they were thinking, Jesus as a teacher wants the disciples to think about what their deep-rooted prejudices were and what the implications are. And through his initial refusal to speak, it is as if Jesus is saying, of course I want to send her away. I want to get rid of her. I don't have time of the day for, for, for this kind of, you know, social trash and it's shocking to say the least but that's precisely the point it is simply incomprehensible that Jesus would say something like this but it is not shocking or incomprehensible that the disciples would say this they had been shaped by a story that insisted that they were the chosen people, God's special people, and that they were to maintain their distance from pagan nations. And their story, their history is replete with sad instances where they had failed to keep these principles in place, and inevitably, Israel's unique faith was compromised. That's why they had to go into exile. Instead of maintaining their faith in pagan environments, they tended to take on themselves the religious practices of the people around them. And so faithful Jews were zealous about boundaries. It was us and them. It was 
And, you know, Jesus belongs to us, not them. And they obviously forgot that they had been chosen for a task, a personal task, not primarily for privilege. Well, you can only imagine the tense silence that followed the affirmation of his exclusive commitment to the house of Israel. The disciples don't know no response. You can imagine they're, they're happy, but the woman does. She doesn't leave. She comes and she kneels down before Jesus. Her mother's heart said no for answer. So she comes again to a well-known Lord, help me. She might not have been aware of the, the story of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath, but the disciples would have known. And remarkably, they're in the same area now. They were also necessarily aware of the real prophetic commitment to the widow and the orphan. And it was something that Jesus embodied time and time again during his ministry. And so only a counselor would have been unmoved by the woman's dramatic action, her simple, direct words that spilled from her lips. She leaves the messianic title with all its link to the Jewish people aside right now. She takes the posture of a beggar, and using a beggar's traditional request, she says, Lord, help me. Would this be all it takes for the disciples to change their perspective? Well, it seems not. And so it's as if that Jesus asked the disciples, will you really be happy if I get rid of this woman and limit my ministry to Israel? Is this really what the gospel of the kingdom of God is all about? Think about it. I'll show you where your narrow theology leaves you. So to a desperate woman on her knees in front of Jesus, to someone pleading for the healing of her child, Jesus takes the next move and shows the disciples the implication of their racism. It, it, you know, it's so embarrassing to hear and to see one's deepest prejudices kind of out in the open. It, it's truly shocking. But listen to Jesus again. It's not right. It's not fair to take the bread away from the children and to throw it to dogs. Ouch. And by implication, of course, Israel is children, and this woman is compared to a dog. Now, dogs in Middle Eastern culture, both Jewish and non-Jewish, uh, were, were, are still considered unclean. They're almost as despised as pigs. Dogs were ne never pets. They, they were perhaps kept as wild, half-wild guard dogs or left to scavenge on the street, but, but no one had a dog for a pet. Ignoring a, a desperate mother is sad. It's disturbing. To, to neglect the desperate pleas of a mother who loves her child is, is hard to watch. But to publicly humiliate this needy woman by calling her a dog is something else. Semitic cultures are, are honor-shame cultures, unlike our culture. And this would have been considered the ultimate shame. And yes, it's true that Jesus tempers the harsh words by using the term little dogs. I mean, he's not referring to 80-pound guard dogs that lunges on its chain to a passerby, but, but it's still very insulting, and it's in public, no less. And yet, as Bailey points out, the term dog is primarily for the disciples' benefit. Jesus is saying to them, I, I know you think that Gentiles are dogs and that you want me to treat them like that, but pay attention. This is where your bias takes you. Are you really comfortable with this scene? 
Well, what will the woman do? She keeps going. She accepts the title. It's true, Lord. Yes, Lord, she says. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Surely you've got a little bit of compassion for me too, Lord. I, I realize I don't deserve anything. It doesn't matter what, what you call me. Just look with compassion on my situation, please. The, the disciples have watched and listened to the whole exchange. They've not seen such persistence among the people of Israel. And the woman's total confidence in Jesus' compassion, despite their own prejudices, is, is amazing. And her posture completely unravels their world of who's in and who's out. All their prejudices against women, against Gentiles, suddenly seem so ugly, so unattractive, so wrong. Jesus now commends the woman for her great faith. She has demonstrated unfailing confidence in, in Jesus as God's agent of salvation, both for Jews and Gentiles. She has publicly confessed him as Lord, as Messiah, as Master, as the one to whom she will offer ultimate and comprehensive allegiance. She is willing to pay the price of public shame and rejection in order to receive the grace that flows from Jesus. And so Jesus pronounces those wonderful words, be it done to you as you desire. Matthew comments, her daughter was instantly healed. We never read about the disciples' reaction. As Matthew records this, he invites his readers to a major paradigm shift in their thinking. This is a new understanding of who God is, who Jesus is, and how Jesus dismantles false systems within human society. And here's where the missional reading of the text can help us tremendously. In the world of the, Old, of the New Testament, racial distinctions were firmly entrenched, and discrimination went both ways. Not just Jews despising Gentiles, but Gentiles despised the Jews as well. But after Pentecost... God shows that his good news is meant for everyone, that his work of reconciliation is meant to be a global movement. And for that to take place, the church would need a seismic realignment with the kingdom of God in their thinking in order to overcome the obstacles to God's mission in the world. If the disciples, or the apostles as they were also known, were meant to be the foundation of the church, Racial prejudices simply needed to be addressed, dismantled, and replaced by a global vision of God's grace. It was not easy. The book of Acts narr narrates the difficulties that the apostles had to navigate in order to accept that God's love spilled outside the narrow confines of Israel's border. You can think of P Peter with his vision on, on the rooftop, it's one of those key moments. The whole discussion about clean and unclean. And I mean, it was prescribed in the law. They had chapter and verse to look up the restrictions. But the cross and the resurrection and Pentecost changed everything. And yet it took time. They, they were amazed, you might recall, when they heard that God gave his Holy Spirit to the Gentiles too. And yet the church still struggled. It was hard to unlearn centuries of racial segregation. And the basic question again and again was, does somebody need to become Jewish in order to join the church? And don't forget that at first, 
Christians were, were simply seen as a movement that grew out of Judaism. And Judaism was marked by dietary laws, by purification laws, by circumcision rites. And they had biblical re references to back it all up. In other words, they had a theological rationale for doing what they did. God told them to live this way. So it was hard for them to realize that the law was a tutor that would serve to bring them to Christ, the Son of God. But once he came, suffered, died, rose again, and sent his spirit, nothing would be the same. All the Jewish rituals and purification laws were temporary measures to preserve the uniqueness of Israel, but they, they had passed. Yes, they were Abraham's descendants, and Abraham had been chosen, but it was for the blessing of the nations, not just Israel. And so it's not until the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15 that the church, guided by the Holy Spirit, came to consensus that ethnic identity was not a prerequisite for salvation in Christ. The apostles needed to be schooled in the global scope of the kingdom of God, but so did local churches. As they heard the gospel read from Sunday after to Sunday, they would be shaped to be God's people scattered throughout Asia Minor. And it was vital that the church did not misunderstand Jesus or the gospel. They, they needed to understand the sin of racism, sin because it distorts God's purposes for humanity, because it misses God's mark of the all-encompassing love, so it needed to be addressed. And as you read through the letters of Paul, you'll come to the question of food, of diet, of circumcision again and again. But it's in Ephesians where he masterfully celebrates that Jesus is the one who came to break down the wall between Jew and Gentile once and for all. Yeah, it was so hard to learn. And yet, there was hope. Um, in Acts chapter 27, Paul is on his way to Rome to be judged. And their port of departure is none other than Sidon. And Ju Julius, the centurion who was bringing Paul to Rome, allowed him to visit his friends in Sidon. Now, we can't be sure, but I like to think that the church was there in part due to the testimony of this Canaanite woman whose daughter Jesus healed. And then when Paul writes to the Romans, the story has changed, as we read. Now, now Gentile believers are wondering why, why Jews seem to be excluded. If they had the law and, and the prophets, the covenant and the promise, if Jesus was born a Jew and yet his people rejected him, can God's promises really be trusted? What is God up to? And so Paul takes three chapters to outline what God is doing in the world, culminating with that bold affirmation that Israel's apparent apostasy is only temporary, and God will again move with the Spirit so that Jew and Gentile will form one body. And Paul, of course, bursts into doxology just thinking about this. Well, today we have our first... Um, in-person service after months of worshiping in isolation in our homes. And it's wonderful to be back here again, even though we're not all here. And to be honest, I might have preferred another text for today, but the text has chosen us. As we move to reopening the building as a place of worship, who will be welcomed? 
Yes, I, I realize that we always leave room for any visitor who wants to join us as we register to attend. Nevertheless, we have to ask ourselves, are there unspoken rules about who is warmly welcomed and who we'd rather not have join us? Now, I, I realize that there's a strong desire among both leadership and members to be a church where all are welcomed. But what does that look like? Are we even aware of the unspoken rules of the game that the visitors might immediately sense while we don't because it's part of our church culture? And culture can be defined as the way that we do things around here. How many times do we evaluate someone along our lines of economic status or ethnic background and make some sort of a mental judgment? Or perhaps we've decided we'll let them into the building, but not into our homes or circle of friends. You can come in, but not too close. Jesus dares to say out loud what the disciples thought in the deepest, darkest corners of their heart. What would he find in our hearts? Ours, I said. I didn't say yours. I include myself. And besides, if, if we put all our hopes for transformation on the Sunday morning service, we'll probably be disappointed. The threshold is pretty high for people of color, for single moms, for people struggling with life to come in for the first time, even if we invite them. Perhaps the starting point isn't first and foremost Sunday morning, but the development of relationship with people that we love to see join us during the week. And in that way, the movement to participation in Sunday's services will be a natural one, and they will feel welcome because they know us and have been accepted by us. And then they, they will be welcome to a body of believers who gather to worship here, and they will be welcome to the Lord's table as well. Being that kind of church can be a challenge. It takes work. It's much easier to be birds of a feather that flock to get, get, get together. Change is disruptive. It always implies a, a loss of some kind. Welcoming all kinds of people can be messy. But, you know, there's tremendous blessing in aligning ourselves with God's vision for His church. As we come to welcome people that may have originally thought that well, we have thought that, that don't really belong, maybe we'll be surprised again and again. As they become our teachers and give us lessons on prayer, on perseverance, on compassion, on faith. That's exactly what the Canaanite woman did. We get discouraged when our prayers aren't answered right away. She persisted. We, we get angry when we get insulted. She found another way to argue her case. Not only that, this woman from the outside had a much better understanding of who Jesus was and what he was all about than many who had grown up in the Jewish tradition of Jesus' day, people that had access to the scriptures, people that studied theology. And, you know, we'll be surprised and we'll be blessed by them as well. If I can tell some stories, I remember how new believers in the mountains of Kowulku in Guatemala taught me about faith and prayer. I'll give you two examples. We had a prayer meeting in our, at our house every Wednesday night. And people weren't obliged to pray, but on this particular night, Marcella wanted to pray. She was a new believer. She had a very frank conversation with God, 
and didn't end her prayer with the right words. She didn't say, in the name of Jesus, amen. She said, well, God, that's all I have to say to you today. See you tomorrow. Bye. Now, I've prayed a lot in my life, and I've heard many, many prayers too, but this is one that I will never forget. There was such beautiful authenticity about it. Marcella knew that she was praying, she was talking to God, and she believed that he was listening to her just as a friend would. And then uh, there was a group of believers about a seven-hour walk from town that had formed a small church. One of the leader's daughters became seriously ill. It was too far, too late, and too risky to take her to the clinic in town. So they gathered around her and prayed for healing. Now, you have to realize that lockjaw had already set in and that she was unconscious. And yet they prayed, believing that God would show compassion. And he did. And within an hour, she was outside running again. Now, these new believers had a very minimal understanding of Scripture or theology. Never, never gone to seminary or even school, and, and yet they taught me so much about prayer, about faith, about God. And it was a humbling lesson for me. I mean, I was the missionary. But I didn't think that God would really do something like that. No, no, these new followers of Jesus believed, and God heard their prayer, and God healed. Jesus was powerfully real to them, and I had to adjust my theology. And subsequently, we saw many more miracles as well. Well, today we also have the Lord's Supper, and the table is a powerful reminder that Christ is the host, and there's room for all. This is something that we want to study as a congregation, but let me tell you one more story to illustrate the radical nature of the gospel of the table. Some decades ago, when the deep South American states were, were still segregated into blacks and whites, with separate drinking fountains and schools and doors and all the rest, a young Baptist man started to date an Episcopalian or an Anglican young black woman. And the young man went with her to church for the first Sunday. And um, as it was Anglican practice, they celebrated communion. Um, People would come up to the front and they would kneel at the rail And then the priest would give them the bread. Um, And given that this was his first time, the young black man sat at the back of the church and wanted to watch. Well, the black young woman was the only black member in this church. And she went up to the front and knelt between the other white parishioners. And the priest walked along the line and putting the wafer in everyone's hand with the words, the body of Christ broken for you. And as the priest moved down the line, the black black man held his breath as he watched. Would the white minister really serve her too? And he did. And then one of the servers followed the priest with a single cup filled with wine. And they would kind of tip the cup to everyone's lips and, and give them a sip as they said, the blood of Christ shed for you. And so the server moved slowly down the line, giving the white people a sip. Now, remember, this was a time when it was, it was forbidden for people to drink from the same fountains or even walk through the same door. And so the black young man held his breath as the server offered the cup to the person beside his black girlfriend. 
And he was sure that he would maybe just tap her on the head, but that he would skip his girlfriend. There's no way that she'd be allowed to sip from the same cup. It would break down every single societal rule at the time. But no, with the very same movement with which he had given the cup to every other person, the server tipped the wine to the lips of the black girl, and he said, the blood of Christ shed for you. And then he continued down the line and continued to serve white people. Well, it was not allowed in any other cultural or social setting, but at the table, Christ is the host. And there is room at the table for everyone. And when this young black man saw this, he said, this is a church that I want to join. And I have to tell you that that young black, that black man was an, uh, either the grandfather or the father of today's presiding bishop, Michael Curry, the one who preached at Prince Harry and Meghan's wedding. And you know, that's what the gospel does, both preaching and gathering at the table. So may God help us to be a people shaped by the gospel, to, to see others the way Christ does, and to welcome them to our fellowship so that we are what we're called to be, the body of Christ. And I can assure you, we will be blessed and God will be glorified. Let's pray. Compassionate God, in a world where we so often get things wrong and fail to understand your purposes for those around us, we thank you for a passage like this. Holy Spirit, set our hearts on fire with love to Christ. And may that love transform us so that we see others and welcome others as Christ sees and welcomes them. In his name we pray. Amen.